You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, April 27th, 2016, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Kara Santamaria. Howdy. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Good evening, folks. How is everyone Hello. this evening? Good. Hanging in Yeah, there. really feeling good, actually. I'm okay. Just okay, Jay? <laughs> I'm, Jay? You know, I work very hard, Steve. Yes, you do. Yeah, for you. Yeah. I think it's a vacation time. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, just, I, I fully realize like, I need... Really Daytime. need a vacation. <laughs> well, we have Nexus coming up in a couple of weeks. Yeah, that's, that's what I wanted to <laughs> tell not, you about, Steve. That's not working. <laughs> that's when I'm planning my vacation. I'm just kidding. Yes, I am super excited about Nexus. I mean, you know what's funny? Like, we've been going to conferences for so long that conferences are like the place where I see all my old friends, right? <laughs> like right, get- right, right. We have an excellent interview coming up later in the show with Michael Whalen, who is a science fiction artist and happens to be a friend of ours. We're going to talk about the whole computers creating art thing. Uh, but first, Bob, you're going to give us a forgotten superheroes of science. You haven't done one in a couple of weeks. You're a little behind. Yes. This week, I'm talking about Annie Maunder, who was the first professional woman astronomer of Ireland. She and her husband had uh, the Maunder Minimum named after them, a period of decades when sunspot activity was shockingly low and actually had an effect on Earth's climate. The story starts in the late 1800s, which is when, uh, when, when she lived. And as you could imagine, it was quite backwards at that time in its attitude towards women. Uh, the Greenwich Observatory considered it an unusual experiment when it hired college-educated women, even when it entailed giving them jobs meant uh, for teenage boys. Um, Annie Maunder, who was then Annie Russell, joined the solar department – um, and studied the sun, sunspots, and magnetic storms, and pretty much found her career. Uh, the department head was Walter Maunder, who uh, wasn't as educated as, as his future wife. When they did get married, uh, Annie had to quit because of the civil service ban. If you if you got married, you couldn't work, which just seems kind of silly. And uh, yet she still collaborated with him for decades. She became an expert eclipse photographer and even designed her own camera, which beat out bigger ones uh, at capturing the biggest corona streamer ever seen at that time during one of the eclipses that she traveled the world to see. Um, that work and most of our of her work uh, was published under her husband's name, as was required by all married female scientists, pretty much. Can you imagine that happening today? Um, it's, it's only in the past few decades that a lot, uh, that it was realized that a lot of this work was actually her work or, or a significant contribution by her. So together, both of them, uh, they created the famous Maunder Butterfly Diagram, uh, which showed how sunspots cluster at high latitudes early in the solar cycle, and then migrate down to the equator later in the cycle. If you put a series of these images together, you you, it's, you could tell that it looks kind of like butterfly wings. It's quite pretty. Um, they also show that Earth's magnetic storms happen in 27-day cycles and are caused by the sun's corona and not the, the face of the sun. And they also conclusively confirmed an earlier prediction that between 1645 to 1715, there was a dearth of sunspots um, this was in the middle of what's called the Little Ice Age, when glaciers were actually on the move and the uh, London River Thames was frozen over. Um, so that was that was big. They uh, they did not actually make that prediction, but they confirmed it to such a degree that they actually named it after them. And I just love the alliteration, of course, the Maunder Minimum. And also, they have a a crater on the moon named after them. 
Maunder Crater, which sounds kind of cool. So remember Annie Maunder. Mention her to your friends, perhaps when discussing magnetic flux tubes in convective zones. By the way, Bob, it's Thames, not Thames, is the name of the river you were going for. But how cool would it be to have a crater on the moon named after you? Oh, my God, yeah. Yeah. There's enough of them. Buy <laughs> 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 names. <laughs> Make yeah, one. You know what? What's funny about that, Steve, is I would look at a crater on the moon as something that's going to last a very long time. Oh, yeah. And, so, and something that people were going to see all the time, too. It's cool. Sure. My luck would be on the far side of the moon. That's okay. <laughs> I take it. I what, take it. Steve, anyone's the rest of the universe What was that from Dune? What does uh, Paul say? <laughs> nice. What do you call the mouse shadow on the second moon, right? Was that what he said? That was that's where he gets, Usul. Usul, right. Yeah. That's where he got his, his whatever vault, his siege name. Yep. <laughs> 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 Dude. Dude, it's a great, it's a great series of books. It's tough. Oh my god, yep. the best, one of the best. And very skeptical, very, very skeptical. I recommend it. All right, Evan, this is an interesting news item. This is one of those where at first I thought this seems kind of bogus. Tell us about life beginning with a flash, <laughs> a flash and a bang and a burst of light. Yeah, that's right. It's according to new research from Northwestern Medicine, that's Northwestern University Medicine, a stunning explosion of zinc fireworks occurs when a human egg is activated by a sperm enzyme. And the researchers say also that the size of the sparks is a direct measure of the quality of the egg and its ability to develop into an embryo. So size matters. The size of this flash, size of the sparks matter. Yes, <laughs> apparently they do. Um, this is uh, fascinating stuff because it's the first time that the zinc sparks have been documented in a human egg. The phenomena has been observed bef in other animals before, but not uh, at the spark of human conception. Evan, let me ask you a this question. The, mm. You like Mrs. Spoggle? Damn. Didn't see that coming. Oh, no, I don't understand. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, that's okay, do, Kara. Do, do, we go, do we go tangent? Simpsons. <laughs> Simpsons. Tell her, tell her. Yeah. Just say From Simpsons. the Simpsons. Why don't I get From that, the then? I should at least get your Simpsons references. Yes, you should. Dishwasher. Mr. Sparkle. He's Mr. Mr. Sparkle. Sparkle. Right. So... Homer calls them up and he's like, um... He calls the fact. Why are you using my... Like, he's just Why am I Mr. Sparkle? Why am... <laughs> and they answer like on the other end of the phone. You like Mr. Sparkle? <laughs> <laughs> it's funny even uh, when you say it. Now that's, <laughs> that's actually one of the two funnies. One of the two funnies I thought that would come up in this news item. We'll see if the other one emerges. If it doesn't by the end, I'll... I'll okay. <laughs> okay. So... Uh, as I was saying, this is the first time the zinc sparks have been documented in the human egg. And the study was published in the April, April 26th issue of Scientific Reports. Now, Teresa Woodruff, she's one of the study's two senior authors and an expert in ovarian biology and director of Northwestern Center for Reproductive Science. She said the following. This means if you can look at the zinc spark at the time of fertilization, you will know immediately which eggs are the good ones to transfer in in vitro fertilization or IVF, it's a it's a way of sorting egg quality in a way that is never that we've never been able to assess before. So it sounds like this is a great way for them for scientists to decide which you know which eggs you're, <laughs> you're going to go with and which ones you are, and and that saves a lot of time, money, grief, everything. Uh, so it's a pretty big. Uh, a discovery by these scientists. Um, the, the scientists activated the egg by injecting a sperm enzyme into the egg that triggers calcium 
to increase within the egg, and it therefore releases zinc from the egg, which I had not known about before. I had no idea of the calcium and zinc sort of phenomenon that occurs with fertilization. Um, so that was fascinating. Now, do you know why? Here's a trivia question. Uh, why did they use sperm enzyme as, a suppose, as, a, as opposed to actual sperm in the experiment? Anyone know? Because it's hard to tell when the sperm actually touches the egg. Uh, good, good guess, but no. Don't you just like hear a knock? Hello? <laughs> <laughs> Can I come in now? Well, maybe, maybe uh, it lasted longer. Actual sperm is not permitted in human research under federal law. That's what I was going to say. What? Which is, uh, yeah, it seems archaic. There's so much of it. (laughs) Well, to clarify, Evan, the use of human sperm is not prohibited. It's the creation of a human embryo that is prohibited. The experiment can't include fertilizing an egg with a sperm because then you end up with an embryo. So that's that's where the restriction comes in. Now, uh, the scientists had only discovered the zinc spark with mice uh, five years ago. And now it's in five years, they've gone all the way from first seeing it in mice. Now they're seeing it in the human eggs. And they say it's uh, fascinating. So as the zinc is released from the egg, as I explained before, what causes the flash? What causes the spark? Well, it binds to small molecule probes, which emits light in fluorescence microscopy experiments. And they were able to see the spark using a new fluorescent sensor, able to track the movements of zinc in the live cells. And the team caught the glimpse of the egg zinc storage capabilities and found that some 8,000 zinc compartments, each one containing around 1 million zinc atoms, were just ripe for exploding. Wow. So the tiny fireworks that result were found to last also for about two hours after fertilization. That's a, that's a, that's quite a show. That's movie length we're now, talking about. Ev, do you think this is a potential future source of light? For humans, no, <laughs> I don't. It's not like you can read a book by it. Or something. That, that gives new meaning to the term "keep it up all night." You know what I mean? Absolutely. Oh Jesus! <laughs> so, so let me emphasize a few things here because a lot of the headlines say things like "life begins with a flash." So, first of all, as we just said, there's no life here. This is an enzyme, a fertilization enzyme. Fertilization did not actually occur. Second, as you said, Evan, these are fluorescent probes. This is not the embryo itself does not emit any light, and the zinc spark you know, only sparks because the experimenters added molecules that fluoresce when zinc binds to them. Without those added probes, there would be no fluorescence. There would be no emission of light. And just as an aside, you didn't mention this, but the purpose of the release of zinc is to is part of a cascade that uh, seals essentially the embryos so that multiple sperm will not fertilize it. Like once one sperm gets in, then there's a change in the membrane to block out any further sperm, and that that zinc release is all part of that. And just one more caveat as well. So again, because this was simulated fertilization, we need to know if this occurs with actual fertilization and if that will in a human because we get and it was seen in a mouse and will that be a practical method could we practically apply that to evaluating embryos for in vitro fertilization they need to do the next series of experiments hopefully they'll be able to do that with the embryo ban i guess they could do it just as a sort of an observational study when they do actual in vitro fertilization so i suppose that'll be the next series of st- of tests and studies to see you know to see if it to see if it holds true. But I, I 
it sounds like it sounds promising. It'll see. We'll have to see if it pans out. This is like th- that preliminary research stage where this, this suggests a possibility, but then they have to find out if it's actually real before we could talk about using this to predict which eggs are going to be the most fertile in in vitro fertilization. So it, it, the, the phenomenon is interesting. Uh, the application, we're a couple of steps away from that. All right, Carrie, you're gonna, you have another similar item that is interesting, but maybe a little bit more preliminary than the headlines are indicating. Tell us about this one. Yeah, a little overhyped here. So, and yet another example of, um, kind of blown out of proportion science reporting. No, plants do not have mal- uh, mad cow disease. And also plants don't use prions to remember. But what actually happened, if you've been seeing these headlines, here's one from New Scientist, plants may form memories using mad cow disease proteins. Uh, what actually did happen is that for the first time ever, scientists have discovered a prion-like protein in a plant. So in order to kind of discuss what that means, I think we have to back up a bit and do a little mini primer on prions. Primer! Uh, first, I say prion. Oh, no! <laughs> it's a primer on primer. prions. <laughs> Oh, it's so funny. That's so where I was about to go. Oh, my God. We we talk so different, you and me. Um, Yeah, it's so weird. We were having this conversation before we started recording, and everybody's like, no, it's prion. And I was like, no, it's prion. And so we looked online, and it's totally both, depending on where you're from. Um, So you'll hear me say prion throughout, because that's much more comfortable for me, but... The computer lady who read me one of the articles while I was driving via TTS, she kept saying prion and it was driving me crazy. Um, but here's a little, um, a little Short background drive. on them. <laughs> Prions are <laughs> fascinating, first of all. They are one of the only infectious agents that aren't actually alive per se, other than, you know, you could argue that viruses are an True. infectious agent that isn't alive, but it is the mm. only infectious agent that doesn't contain DNA or RNA. So, that's Prions big. are actually, wow. yeah, it's huge. They're, they're misfolded proteins and they cause a class of diseases called the transmissible spongiform encephalopathies. So most famously, Jeez. that's bovine spongiform encephalopathy or mad cow disease. That can happen when cows are actually fed contaminated meat and bone meal. In humans, you see often, um, you see it known as Creutzfeldt Jakob disease, among others. Yeah. This can happen from eating meat with mad cow, or it can even be passed down genetically, as is the case in about five to 10% of incidences. And most notably, you'll see these among, um, the Jewish population. And prions are also mm. famously the cause of Kuru, which is a fascinating disease that struck a tribe in Papua New Guinea following ritualistic cannibalism don't yeah, eat do brains because if human brains human brains because if those human brains have prions you could get them too and what happens with prions is these misfolded proteins will actually kind of spark other proteins nearby to misfold as well and you see this exponential like yeah unfolding of these mis or you, this exponential growth of these misfolded proteins and eventually when you look at um the histology, when you look at slides of brain tissue under the microscope, it looks like Swiss cheese. There's actual holes in the brain tissue, and it causes a whole host of horrible uh, symptoms. But it is a ge- degenerative neurological condition that um, does lead to death. So it's pretty intense. But I digress, because what we're talking about now is prions in plants. Totally different animal. <laughs> and although last year researchers from the UT Health Science Center in Texas found that plants can serve as a vector for prions, until now, prions have never been found to actually occur in plants. So 
Here's what happened. Susan Lindquist and her colleagues at the Whitehead Institute in Cambridge, Mass, have been doing research on prions for many, many years. And they specifically focus on the role that prions play in yeast or other fungi. And they found compelling evidence that they may be beneficial to the organisms, like helping them adapt to their environment. Knowing the coding regions that are involved, because they've been studying prions in, in yeast for so long, they scanned the genome of Arabidopsis, uh, also known as thalecress, which is a flowering plant, and it's a model organism you see in a lot of plant biology labs. They found that three out of the four coding regions that they got hits with were consistent behaviorally with the way that prions work. You know, there's the misfolded state and then the... um kind of the healthy, regular folded state. And and they found that three out of four of these coding regions were consistent with a prion that can misfold. In the plants, the prion is called, this is a really fun word to try to pronounce, luminodependence. So we're going to call that LD for short. And LD usually responds to daylight, and it also controls flowering time. And when um, Lindquist and colleagues inserted the LD gene into yeast, it produced a protein that then misfolded and spread the misfolding exponentially, just like a prion. And even later generations could inherit the, the effect and their versions of the protein misfolded as well. So it's a misnomer to say that prions were found in plants, but a prion-like protein was found in Arabidopsis, put into yeast, and it tended to do what prions have been known to do in both fungi and um, animals. So here's where things get speculative. And this is what bugs me about a lot of the science reporting around this, because it seems like the bulk of the articles are not about what was actually found, but they're about this. Yeah, Lindquist is not a plant biologist. She does not claim to know much about the plant genome. But here's a quote from an article in Nature that covered the findings that I think sums up quite beautifully where the bad reporting was. Not to say that this was actually poorly reported in Nature. I think that's one of the few articles that I found that were pretty solid. Quote, so the same might be true in plants, she speculates. Linquist says that a clue could come from work done by other researchers, which has suggested that in fruit flies, the buildup of prion-like proteins might help to form or stabilize long-term memories by creating long-lived protein clusters at synapses. That is a huge overreach. Mm-hmm. That is incredible, incredibly speculative. We have no idea what these proteins do or don't do when they're in this misfolded arrangement. We have no idea why plants might have evolved to have these proteins. We do know that in a healthy arrangement, they seem to have some control over um, responses to daylight and flowering time. And that's where the reach jumped because it has been noted that in some plants, if, uh, if like the climate has changed, if the patterns are off, they won't flower because it's, you know, colder at certain points of the year, warmer than it should be. And they'll kind of quote unquote remember what those seasonal cycles were and actually flower later or earlier, depending on past data. We, we know that that happens, but we don't know how or why. We also know that this gene tends to be involved in daylight recognition and and flowering time control. And somehow now we're just making a wild speculative jump that a prion-like protein just discovered in a plant and only discovered because we saw that it had prion-like activity in yeast is somehow involved in plants making memories. Right, which you have no... Yeah, that's that was the pure speculation. This pure speculation, and that's all most of the articles actually said. 
So keep that in mind when you're reading this. You know, if you can go back to the source publication as often as you can, even if it's just about reading the abstract, you know, if you can't get access to full text articles, because most of them are behind paywalls. And also look at multiple sources that are reporting on the story. And you'll start to see that there are commonalities by different reporters. And then there are things that really stick out. And you know, put on your, put on your skeptical cap. I know it's a lot of work. That's why we try to do it for you guys a little bit and present these articles on the show. But if something especially sparks your interest, if it sounds too good to be true, if it sounds like, holy crap, this is a really uh, new thing. It's a really big thing. Read about it a little bit more than, than you would just superficially. And I think that oftentimes you'll find some things are overhyped. It is new. It is exciting. And it could launch a lot of interesting new research, but I think that the jury is still out as often as the case on what these proteins do, why these proteins are there. And, um, you know, the story hasn't been told completely. Yeah. That, that pattern is so common. Mm -hmm. So what you need to ask yourself is what did the study actually show? What was the data and not the speculation about what it might mean, because you're right. The reporting is often about the speculation and not about the actual data. So until I could really answer that question to my own satisfaction, I don't know what a re- what a study really showed, what it was about. You know. Yeah, and so I think it's important to talk about what the study shows first. We can discuss where this might go, but we have to put it in that bucket yeah. and say, you know, this is the discussion section of the paper. This is the why am I doing this, and what can we do in the future, and where can this go? But for now, uh, that's why I really liked this Nature article. I got to give props to Anna Nawag. Rodsky, who wrote about the study, um, because she even really pointed out that multiple researchers say that this is wild speculation, and they completely disagree that this is something that we even have an inkling, you know, that we even remotely know about. But prions are cool, and we are learning that misfolded proteins. So again, just for a little bit of background, Mm -hmm. in order for something to be a protein, a protein is a sequence of amino acids that is folded into a particular functional shape. If it's not folded up, it's just a polypeptide. It's just a string of amino acids. A protein is folded. This is an area of ignorance and research, you know, where we're trying to figure out how do proteins know how to fold. There's the protein folding project, right? It's mm-hmm. like a fold proteins at home thing. Um, and we're, it's one of those problems that it's hard for computers to brute force their way through because it's just so complicated. Yeah, it's got like multiple levels. You've got the primary yeah. and secondary, tertiary and quaternary, and then there's like the sheets and the whatevers and the, there's all these different ways that they fold. And so now we're finding that, yeah, proteins can fold in more than one way. And uh, it's this is a disease when it folds in a way that uh, destroys its functionality, like with mm-hmm. mad cow disease or Kutzel-Jakob disease. Uh, and fascinatingly, it, it kind of like has this nucleation site that just like moves out from it. You have yeah. one misfolded protein and all the ones nearby start to misfold as yeah, well. It induces mm. the confirmation in the other proteins, which mm-hmm. is cool. But we're also finding like, for example, that Alzheimer's disease may be primarily a protein folding 
disorder. Yeah, mm, yeah. fascinating. Yeah, that it's oh boy. maybe this is as opposed to a plaque buildup. Well, and then, there's lots of things happening with Alzheimer's disease, but we're still trying to figure out what's driving it, as opposed to the right. effects of it. Uh, so, we, and we again, this is just another thing that's happening that we're not sure what role it's actually playing. But that's an area of research right now: is what's the role of misfolded proteins in Alzheimer's disease? So it's more than just these rare, you know, prion diseases that may have a role in neurodegenerative diseases as well. Very interesting. All right, let's move yeah. on. Mm-hmm. Have you guys heard? About the Stefans, David and Colette Stefan. Uh, oh, the Canadian this is blowing up our inbox. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. oh yeah. yeah, a lot of people telling us about. <laughs> and this I wrote one. about it on Science Based Medicine today. It's a sad case, but yeah. you know, it's one it, one in our chain of when pseudoscience kills kind of informal mm-hmm. series. David and Colette Stefan are, are Canadians who four years ago, their nineteen month old, uh, died from a bacterial meningitis. This is like a parent's worst nightmare, men, you know, bacterial meningitis. I've seen cases of it. It's just horrible because it could be so, it could be very fulminant. You know, the, essentially the, you know, the bacteria grows out of control. You get the, this pus filling up your skull and you, you herniate. Essentially, essentially your brain gets squeezed out the bottom of your skull and it gets Jeez. destroyed. And then your brain, Oof. the story is that the, the Stephans were recently convicted of neglect for not taking their 19-month-old boy, Ezekiel, to medical attention until it was too late, resulting in his death. So they, they were convicted of failing to provide the basic essentials of life to their child. As it turns out, the father, David Stefan, runs a essentially a supplement shop, the True Hope Nutritional Support Inc. So they're big believers in quote-unquote natural remedies. They're also right. anti-vaccinationists. They've, they've completely drunk of the alternative medicine, natural medicine, Kool-Aid. Apparently, Ezekiel had never been to a doctor's appointment, like a well-child visit to a pediatrician. Oof. Oh, so he became sick four years ago, and they treated him with home remedies, uh, and he didn't get better. So apparently, the the mother talked about the case with a friend of hers who's a nurse. Still, you know, it's unclear what exactly the conversation was, whether or not she said this could be meningitis. You know, you sh- and what exactly she advised her to do. Apparently, the mother had looked up like how to treat meningitis online. Uh, that came out in the court case. Uh, at ah. one point, they took him to a naturopath. The naturopath oh apparently sold them echinacea out of the office, but never laid eyes on Ezekiel. Never examined. Whoa! Yeah, this so did a remote analysis and prescribed medication, whatever. Prescribed something to cure this person without even seeing the quote unquote patient. Did, yeah, never laid yeah. eyes on Ezekiel. It was just like sold them echinacea out of their office, but it didn't, <sighs> didn't treat it as like a patient visit. And one more time, how old was Ezekiel? 19 months. Oh, 19 months. Sick. So he continued to get worse. Strangely enough, the yeah, nutritional therapy, echinacea and whatever roots they were giving him didn't work. It got to the point where he was so stiff because the, the meningitis causes your neck and back to become stiff. He was so stiff, oh. he couldn't sit in a car seat. They had to lay him down in the back seat of the car. And when he became almost unresponsive, they, then they rushed him to the hospital. And then there's, you know, debate about, you know, how responsive the ambulance was and did they have the right equipment or whatever. Uh, but he was essentially brain dead upon arrival to the hospital. They couldn't arrive. They couldn't revive him. He was... I think on a ventilator for five days and before they decided to take him off, but he was basically brain dead. Yeah, horrible case. So 
the the state took the parents to court for neglect for allowing Ezekiel to die without providing him proper care and it was just decided yesterday as as of this recording the verdict came back guilty they were found guilty and this was in Canada yeah this is in Canada so do we know yeah. how our laws compare to Canadian laws they're not dramatically different okay they're different so in detail I mean, but you know but this could have happened to you oh yeah Oh, yeah. yeah, absolutely. And it does. And yeah. It does. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. I, yeah. I, I see this as no different than faith healing, right? Except mm-hmm. their, their ideology sure. was in nature as a, you know, instead right. of God, but otherwise it's pretty much the same. Same yeah. idea. So I agree with the verdict. Oh, completely. completely. As a parent, I am, <clears throat> you know, I hear about something changes when you have kids or, you know, you just have like a massive perspective change. And now, like, I hear this a 19 month old, you know, my, my daughter is seven months old. I have a, th- a three year old. Like thinking about losing one of my children due to such a painfully ridiculous neglect, it, it's it crushes me. Like I yeah, hear that, and I'm crushing. like, this child would be happy and alive today if they literally went to the doctor for an hour. Mm-hmm. And not to mention, I mean, aren't aren't there meningitis vaccines for certain kinds, but probably not for what he had? Gotcha. Clearly, there's a lot of blame to go around here. The parents made a wrong call. They they prioritized their ideology over the welfare of their child. I, of course, you have to believe that they felt that they were doing the best and the right thing for their child. They were just massively misguided. But they don't have a right. And here's the thing, and this is what the court decided, and this is why I so agree with the decision, that you know, as a parent, it's not about you. It's not about your beliefs. You don't have a right to impose them on your child. You still have to adhere to a quote unquote standard of care that was the mm-hmm. what the prosecuting attorney how he phrased it and i completely agree with that so that's why they are guilty they neglected a basic standard of care of parents for their children now their children this is also based upon the notion that children aren't the property of the parents they are the wards of the parents they're also right. the wards of the state in in a, in a sense Partially, the state has yeah. a responsibility for people who can't take care of themselves. They defer massively to parents under the assumption that parents want to take care of their kids. And it's really very extreme cases like this. I wouldn't have been surprised if they were not convicted, but you know, I am glad that the jury brought back a guilty verdict here. So the, the parents still have the primary responsibility. I also think that the culture has a responsibility here because we have allowed – this alternative medicine philosophy to, to blossom and flourish in our society. Uh, a generation ago, one generation ago, this kind of stuff would be called health fraud. Now mm. it's alternative mm-hmm. and it's accepted. Right. The state has a massive responsibility. They license naturopaths. Is an interesting wrinkle here that in, in the province where this happened, naturopaths were licensed after Ezekiel died. So we suspect oh. that the naturopathic council won't do anything about this. They'll say, well, it was before our jurisdiction, you know, so we don't. Uh, but they probably wouldn't do anything anyway, to be honest with you. That's an epic, ridiculous cop out. Well, the thing is, here's the thing. Naturopaths have no standard of care. There is no standard of care within <laughs> the right. profession of nat- naturopathy. They're not based upon science. Anything goes, as far as I could tell. They use homeopathy and acupuncture and any crazy thing they want, water cures and you know, energy therapy and just all sorts of nonsense that are not based upon science. So how could you possibly have a standard of care? 
Yeah. You know? Yeah, it's interesting to think, Steve, that no naturopathic doctor is going to lay your judgment on another naturopathic doctor in in a degree where they would be involved in saying that they did something wrong. You can't because then the whole house of cards collapses, right? Yeah. How could you possibly say that treatment was not appropriate? By what standard? Okay, let's apply that same standard to all of naturopathy, and it's all not appropriate. None of it meets any science-based standard, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, they, they can't afford to apply a standard to what they do. So they, they, by definition and in practice, they don't have one. But the state licenses them, which, which legitimizes them. And so that might convince naive parents into thinking that it's appropriate to take a sick child to a, nat- to a naturopath. In fact, naturopaths in many states in the U.S. and in Canada are fighting to be treated, to be given the privileges of a primary care doctor, which is shocking. Uh. That is frightening. They are absolute quacks who shouldn't be practicing at all, let alone being the first point of contact for a sick patient. I mean, it's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Oof. Yeah, this case is a good case of why that would be a horrible, bad idea. You know, it's not like you could say this was an anomaly. No, this is what you, this is it. This is, this is naturopathic care. This is the harm, right? We talk, ask the question, what's the harm? This is the harm. This is the result of being uncritical about unscientific beliefs, you know, about pseudoscience and medicine. This is, you know, the answer to every shruggy. It's like, ah, you know, what, what's the harm? Let them have their magical therapies or whatever. No, this 19-month-old child who should be a perfectly happy, you know, healthy six-year-old now, mm-hmm. uh, that's the harm. That's what happens when you uh, when you treat magic as if it were legitimate medicine. Yep. So just, yeah, horribly tragic case. But the public has a short memory I don't expect this is going to change the narrative. We try. We try to use these cases, if so, you know, try to get something good out of them by saying, pointing out what led to these tragedies. What's it going to take? I mean, do we need like a, a, a measles Disney level event for this type of uh, specific situation where, oh, yeah, we lost 10 kids last month because of ne- because of this alternative medicine? What I mean, this Probably is such an Bob. obvious I mean, it's an in your face case is 19, 19 month old kid died because of neglect, ideological neglect. What and if that doesn't do it. What is it going to take? I, Bob, I sadly, you know, we there's plenty of of uh, examples where, yes, the answer to your question is, yeah, it's going to take something much bigger than just one kid dying. You you know, sure, that's it. At the very least, you know, when we, we get a lot of emails here at SGU and, you know, from a lot of different perspectives, from a lot of different angles, talking about what we did last week, what we did that week, at the very least, I was taken aback by how we, we probably got at least, what, would you say 10, 15 emails specifically about this case? Yeah, which is a lot. It is in the consciousness. Like people are noticing it. And a lot of people wrote in to be like, you guys should cover this because this is a big deal. And that kind of gives me hope. Yeah. Yeah. Although that's our audience. Yeah. That's our audience. It is our audience. Yeah. It's true. But, um, you know, to, to see the kind of camaraderie around that something like this happens and it is an outrage. And I think this is an extreme example. And so it can be a good teaching example because it's obvious to most anybody watching that mm-hmm. this was a travesty. Yeah, I mean, we, I definitely think that we need to focus on legislation because they are. They are getting laws passed to re, to eliminate the standard of care, 
you know, like healthcare freedom laws. That's what they're all about. They're, they're making a lot of progress, re, re eliminating the standard of care because they, they can't adhere to it. We have to reverse that trend, but that, that means convincing scientifically illiterate legislators, unfortunately. And that's, that's been a massively uphill battle. Yeah. We're fucked. <laughs> <laughs> we're, no, we're not. We're just holding the ocean back with a broom. Yeah, basically. <laughs> All right, Jay, get us up to date on who's that noisy. Last week, guys, I played this sound. 30, 20, retard, 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 retard. Okay, guys, what is it? Uh, recharge? Maybe he's saying recharge. No, I no, he's saying, he's saying retard. retard. Like when you, flame when you retard. Like when you retard something, oh, like you slow hold it, it down. Back, slow it down. Yeah, yeah. 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 Jay, like some space mission or some something similar. Yeah, close, but think a lot less dramatic. An airplane. Yeah, yeah. It's an airplane. Ah. Oh. It's a Airbus three nineteen series aircraft. So John Cole um, sent this one in to me, and John is actually a pilot of uh, three different versions of the Airbus, 319, 320, and 321. And John said, um, the enclosed recording depicts the final seconds of the landing phase of an Airbus 319 series aircraft as heard from the flight deck. And then he goes into some technical stuff. The radar altimeter can be heard as if it counts down, allowed certain preset altitude gates until at round out for final touchdown. This is pretty cool, right? At round out for final touchdown. The same synthes <laughs> synthesized voice reverts to repeating, repeatedly chanting the word retard. And it may sound stupid that the system feels it necessary to badger the human pilots about the perfectly obvious fact that the power should come to an idle at touchdown. So the plane is basically saying, slow the F down. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was, you know, I, I found that interesting. Like, I am a huge fan of, like, cockpit sounds and aircraft, spaceship sounds and, you know, anything to do with, like, the mechanics and the engineering behind it and, and the, all that stuff is cool. And when I heard this, I thought it was odd. But what was even more odd was, wow, listeners, so many people knew what this was. And I had no clue what this was when I heard it. I, I got 50 emails of people dead on saying wow. exactly what it is. Wow. Like where They hang out in cockpits in their spare time? A couple of people, listeners of the show that we know very well, you know, I was like, how the hell did you know that? And, they, you know, it was varying degrees of answers. I, I, I was in one. I, I watched a TV show. Um, there was a pretty funny um, – That's my voice on the recording. Yeah, that's me. <laughs> uh, the winner this week is Michael Rops. Michael has been a listener for quite a while. Yeah. And I totally recognize his name and his picture with the email. He said, the countdown is the radar altitude above the ground. The retard is telling the pilot it's time to move the thrust levers to idle for landing. Um, and he said, I believe it's an Airbus A320. Damn close enough. Okay. Thank you, <laughs> Michael. Good guess. Um, so that was it. So I appreciate uh, – Appreciate John for sending that in. I have a new one this week, Steve. Yeah, you ready? I'm ready. Hit me. So that was sent in by a listener named Carrie Gale. Hey, Carrie, thank you so much for that. Very interesting. Couple of things in there, I think that might stir something old in some of us that they may have heard long ago. Yeah, I definitely uh, recognize that. Yep, you do. And when you when you hear it you're going to go, "Oh, ooh, okay. That was that's another thing that was just locked in my head." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I'm not giving any more hints, but that when I heard it I'm like, "Yep, I heard that before." And I had no idea where it was. And then when I when I read the answer, I'm like, "Okay, yeah, totally." 
So thank you, Carrie. And uh, to everyone out there, please do continue. Guys, I'm getting a lot of really cool noises, and it's fun for the show, and it's fun for me. So please do continue to send in any weird sounds you heard this week. And email me at WTN at the Skeptics Guide with your guests. Thanks. All right. Thank you, Jay. Okay, Kara, what's the word? Ah, the word this week was actually recommended by a listener, and it is hyperthymesia, which is having a really efficacious autobiographical memory. So, of course, autobiographical memory is memory relating to your personal past. It can be both episodic and semantic, but it always involves the ability to recall specific situations, experiences, and for some people, even emotions in really vivid detail from any given calendar day. So you've probably heard of people who have uh, hyperthymesia before, right? Can you guys yeah. think of any famous uh, examples? It's uh, the, the gal from Taxi, right? Uh, what's her name? Uh, Mar- Mary Lou Henner? Mary Lou Henner. Mary Lou Henner uh, famously is said to have hyperthymesia. And another famous case in the clinical literature is that of A.J., who was extensively studied. She claims to be able to remember every single day of her life from the age of 14. And yet another more recent from the clinical literature is a patient named H.K., And um, he claims to have remembered every single day of his life since the age of 11. Now, although AJ's brain scans were relatively normal, HK's right amygdala was 20% larger than normal and appeared to have more connectivity to the hippocampus than match controls in his study. Makes sense. Yeah, his brain was also, though, smaller, and he had several other anomalies because he was congenitally blind, and that seemed to have been secondary to... um, a hemorrhagic stroke before birth, so he had cerebral palsy. It's also reported that um, people with hyperthymesia have cognitive limitations and burdens by this great amount of kind of resource that they have to dedicate to remembering. It's not to be confused, though, with people who have an intrinsic ability to calculate the calendar. You've probably known people where you're like, June 7th, 1962, and they're like, Tuesday. That's yeah, day day calculation. Yeah, yeah. that that actually um, can occur in some types of savant synd- syndrome. Sometimes in individuals with very selective types of autism. Um, this is not to be confused with that. These individuals more just hyper remember almost every day of their life. They dedicate a lot of time to thinking about their past, and they dedicate a lot of time to recalling their past. And because of that, they actually have um, have said that they struggle in other areas. And there's also some new research showing that hyperthymetic individuals have certain features in common with individuals who have been diagnosed with obsessive-compulsive disorder. And now the etymology of the word comes from the Greek thymesis, meaning to remember, and of course, hyper, hyper hyperthymesia. Autobiographical memory is different than uh-huh. memory for for other things, you know, it and, is a- and I'm not good with that. I can't remember arguments that I had. I can't remember. Wh- oh, I met you at that time. I'll I'll be decades off from when things happened in my life. Like, oh yeah, I met that <laughs> decades. guy. Oops. It's crazy. Yeah. You have CRS syndrome. What's oh. that? Can't remember shit. (laughs) 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 Nice. Love it. Nice. Um, So what about uh, false memories? Are these people susceptible to false memories the way, say, average people are? That's an interesting question. And what's what's fascinating is the more that I read into this, the more I realized we know very little about these people because they are crazy rare. And it's hard to generalize anything that we know about one individual to other individuals. I 
am totally speaking out of turn saying that they would have to also have false memories the same way that we do, because we know that memory as an encoding process is not perfect. And we know that memories encode in, you know, we don't have a, a video camera in our brains and we do make certain types of connections and we do kind of, uh, I would say change our memories over time due to new experiences. So I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, individuals with hyperthymesia also have false memories. They just seem to have more of a vivid kind of lucid memory and specifically about personal experiences than uh, the general population does. We don't have to speculate. It's been studied. And in fact, people with hyperthymesia have the same false memory processes that people with regular memory do. Mm. Oh, good. So, yeah. So they do. They do form – and every step of the way, they, they form false memories just like people without hyperthymesia do. All right. Well, thank you, Kara. That was a very, very interesting word this week. Yeah. Joining us now is Michael Whalen. Michael, welcome to The Skeptic's Guide. Thank you. Glad to be here. So for those in the audience who don't know, Michael Whalen is a famous science fiction artist. I've actually been a fan of your art since I was a, a child, really. Uh, but you live near us. You moved near us and we became friends. Uh, and we wanted to have you on the show to talk up to as a follow-up to the discussion we had a couple of weeks ago about – the computer that algorithm that can uh, create a essentially facsimile of a Rembrandt painting. I know that you're familiar with this. Yeah. Tell us what you think about that. I think it's interesting technology. I've mixed feelings about it. I think uh, that the uh, the video about it kind of hypes it a little more than I think it deserves to be. But uh, a lot of people put a lot of hours into developing the software and the algorithms uh, that enabled the uh whatever platform they use to, to create this image. And uh, I think it's an interesting experiment, and it'll be uh, uh, fun to see where this technology leads art in the future. I have no doubt that there will be people uh, who take this technology and use it to, uh, to manipulate it and, and create original works rather than uh, digital forgeries, which is basically what they've done with the Rembrandt. Who knows uh, where we'll go from there? I, I know when I talk to collectors that the people who want to own original artwork, one thing they value about original artwork is having a feeling that uh, they're able to see the hand of the artist, so to speak, in the in the paint, in the application of the paint on the canvas. Whereas with the digital print, uh, you don't see that. It's it's perfectly flat. I think one of the most interesting aspects of the technology that they use in this process that was explained in the video is is developing a way of simulating the actual uh, movement and uh, shape of brush strokes in the application of the digital inks on the canvas so that uh, when you hold it up to the light and and uh, hold, look at it at an angle so that you see the highlights uh, across the the image area, you see what appears to be actual brush strokes of paint on the canvas. So I imagine uh, to, to hold the painting and see it uh, with the naked eye, uh, it's probably indistinguishable from an original painting. And uh, that's that's pretty interesting. I am both utterly fascinated by this. Right, it's just amazing what they did with this with that Rembrandt, that next Rembrandt software, and what what it actually did. The next Rembrandt project 
essentially quantified Rembrandt's style. And then when they were done developing the software, they told the software, make us a painting of a 30 to 40-year-old male with, a, with facial hair facing to the right with a white collar and dark clothing. And it painted a painting that is – it's original in the sense that Rembrandt never painted this painting. But it is completely in Rembrandt's hand and style. When you look at it, it's a Rembrandt. It looks like he painted it. So they did give it parameters, but I believe the software just did a remarkable job of quantifying Rembrandt's style and then 3D printing. At the very end, they 3D printed actually brush strokes and everything like Michael was describing. I have a visceral problem with this in a sense because there's something to me that is so human and now, I don't care if it's digital or hand-painted or whatever. I don't care what the medium is, but it really is like a very intimate and romantic relationship that I I have in my head with an artist and their medium and, and the artwork that they produce. You know, even with you, like I like – you know, I've seen you work and I like having that vision in my head of you in your studio doing the process of what you do. And the other thing that bothers me – and just, you know, give me a reaction to these two points. The other thing is that I know that you spent a, the vast majority of your life honing your brand. You, you developed your style. You became very good at it and you, and you own it in a sense, right? You do. I mean, you, you, someone just can't come out and start copying your, your artwork without there being trouble behind that. A human would take a week or a month to make a, a Michael Whalen knockoff or longer. And, and now this software, if they use this software to create your style, to duplicate your style, they could, they could potentially do a Michael Whalen painting in an hour. I've mixed feelings about it. Um, I don't feel threatened by it at all. I, I enjoy digital technology and, and, and embrace the use of digital tools, even my, in my own workflow. And, uh, I find uh, find them very helpful. I think if Leonardo or Rembrandt were living today, they'd be using digital technology to uh, enhance uh, whatever uh, natural gifts uh, nature gave them uh, in terms of uh, their their vision and capabilities as artists. Mm-hmm. Only a tool, after all. Yeah, yeah. That was kind of my reaction. Was that this is a tool, and. Mm-hmm. That how you get from something in your head, an idea in your head, an image or whatever, to the final product doesn't really determine whether it's art or what the artistic content is. It's, it's the creativity, the composition, the, you know, what you're expressing. So, and I think that as technology has progressed, it is increasingly separating the technical aspects of being able to physically create the art from the creative aspect of just like composing and yeah. imagining the art. So I did want to ask you how you feel about that. Like how much do you feel that your technical skill is part of the creative process, is part of your artistic process? And do you feel something would be lost if essentially no technical skill was required that anybody could bring their imagination to life through this kind, you know, a mature version of this kind of technology? Well, the same kind of arguments were uh, in the air when photography was invented. Uh, there were people that said that uh, once photography became freely available, they said this was going to be the death of painting and no one's going to want to buy a painting anymore because we can take a picture. You know, we, we have, dig- we have uh, photography, but, you know, there are still corporate... Uh, CEOs that are having their portraits painted by by master oil painters uh, today, you know, because 
that's considered to be more valuable or have a higher uh, snob appeal than just uh, blowing up a big photograph of the person and putting that in a frame. There's something uh, special about an artist uh, interpreting and and uh, uh, creating a you know an image of a, of a person. So um, I, I think a lot about when it's funny how I always think of um, ways in which uh, music is analogous to what I see happening in the visual arts. And uh, I remember back in the 80s when uh, a lot of synth pop was, was being produced, uh, there was an article in the Rolling Stone magazine where they, they predicted, uh, but, you know, within 10 years that bands wouldn't have drummers anymore because drum machines were so right. good. That, uh, that, you know, but, but, you know, there's, uh, plenty of drummers still working and, uh, there's just nothing like hearing a, a real live drummer. I don't yeah, care how but, sophisticated but, and how good your drum machines <laughs> are. That just doesn't have the same appeal as, as seeing a, a person create that. And I think that's true of painting. Yeah. I mean, but although I have to say that that's because you can hear the difference between even the best drum machines even today and a real live drummer, but that's probably not going to be true forever. And, you know, when, uh, it's like we're kind of in the uncanny valley with drumming, you know, where <laughs> it's pretty. It's like too perfect. Yeah, it's too yeah. perfect. And so yeah. it doesn't feel real. And there's, there's nuances to the drumming that's missing. But, you know, there's no reason why a computer algorithm can't duplicate Rush or whatever. You know, like the, you know, Stuart Copeland, you know, completely duplicate the, the feel of his drumming and the nuance and, and the imperfections to make it indistinguishable and, I gotta believe that's what they're gonna be doing in the studio once well, computers get to that point. point. Steve. Like, I get that. I get, like, there's two sides to this coin. Like, there's something really cool about putting that level of talent, in a sense, in the hands of, of people that don't have it so they can, can write music and, and levels that they wouldn't normally be able to do, right? I get that. Or, you know, I have a cool idea for a painting. I don't have it. I can't draw a straight line with a ruler, but I'm gonna use this software to, Bring my vision to a to a vision a visual reality, right? You can take a photograph and run a Photoshop filter over it that'll make it look like a watercolor painting. Yeah, and say I created this watercolor painting. Uh, but but okay, so here's my question to to everyone: Is there a difference between me doing what Michael just described and me actually painting the watercolor? Is there is there a sense more of in a, in a way, you know, I'm using that word loosely right now, but is there more agency to something that was truly hand created versus something that was spit out by a 3D printer? Or is there more artistic value or is it irrelevant? Yeah, I'm just curious. I mean, I'm just I'm turning this over in my head right now trying to figure out whether or not I have a valid point. I mean, my, I guess, initial gut reaction would be, isn't that what's up to the um, patrons? Isn't that up to the critics? So I think your question is a photograph that, that has a filter over it that looks like a, a watercolor versus a, a real watercolor. Is there something more artistically valuable about that? Well, I would rather have, you know, if it was a really interesting artist that I loved, I would rather have his photoshopped watercolor than like somebody who's, I'm not, it's not my taste having done a real watercolor. 
Yeah. Yeah, I think it's definitely related to to the artist because it, I, mean, I was thinking, would you rather have a wood carving that your dad made for you, you know, that you spend hours or days carving this wood, or you know, what if you just ran, you know, like a, a plastic that looks like wood into a mold and then popped it out? That effort and talent that went specifically in, into the creation, it just adds something that I think. Yeah, but it's. it's so, be hard. I think I think it's overrated. That's all romantic. That does remind me of a time. <laughs> we were- I agree. Here, yeah. Here's my anecdote. We were at a Ren fair and we were admiring this wool, whatever, pullover. And I asked the woman how much it cost. She said 2000 I was like, what, 2000 quatloos? Because, like, really? You're gonna, you, honestly, you're charging $2,000 for that, for a wool sweater, basically. So then she describes the painstaking process she went through to make it. I raised the sheep myself and sheared the sheep, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, I yeah. don't care. Right. That's right. Steve, <laughs> you are so mean. No, sure. That's why people don't do it that way anymore. You know, be, be, right. Because you know, they can't make a living at it. Cause, because I'm not going to pay two thousand dollars for a fifty dollars sweater because you had to go through all the trouble to raise your own sheep that's exactly. relevant to me as the end user i think yeah if it's a, en- if it if it's an item that's got no, no personal you know no personal feeling uh in it then you're absolutely right you're absolutely right that what's the, what's the point but for something yeah, well, i think bob you're, you're you're talking about sentimental value yes, but that's yes. a separate issue entirely it is it is it's a it's a subset Getting back to the Rembrandt, uh, I think uh, I think that digital print, if it was put in the sun, uh, would probably fade a lot faster than a real Rembrandt. Interesting. <laughs> I'm not sure that the digital print would last like uh, yeah, an actual painting would. But let's not miss the hypothetical question here: is what if it, you get the technology gets to the point where there isn't a physical difference? Yeah, like we talked about with the drum machine. What about when drum machines are there? What about when this technique is there? Jay, I remember you having a conversation with George Robb about instruments. Like you used to have to spend five thousand dollars to get a good sounding guitar. Now mm. the manufacturing technology is such that you can get a great sounding guitar for for five hundred dollars. Yeah, and because the technology is just there, you don't. It doesn't have to to be handcrafted anymore because the machine crafters are the technology is so good so we will we will get to the point where those nut those computer 3d printed whatever algorithm driven knockoffs are are of the same physical quality in every way yep. and then it erases it erases the value of the labor and the then the technical skill and I all know that. Steve I don't yeah, deny you'll still any see of those that. collectors yeah, I don't deny it. I just, I, I'm really taking this from like my respect and adoration in a sense of highly skilled, super talented people who have actually chosen the right, like, you know, I, I like you think of Michael's talent and I really admire the medieval illuminators who would spend months writing a letter in yeah. a book, <laughs> but no one is going to do that anymore. You're just a mean person. Do you know this? <laughs> yes, Steve. So insensitive. So, <laughs> Michael, Michael, let me ask you a question. Sure. You do the labor of of the paintings. I know we've uh, had many conversations with you where you're just exhausted and your hands are cramping up, and it's really physically brutal on on you physically to to do paintings. What if you could, you know, sketch out your your art idea, your painting idea, put it into a computer? And then have a computer do all of the technical grunt work. You would do that in a minute, wouldn't you? I would in a New York minute. Yeah, it'd be awesome. Yes, I I have no I don't I don't assign any particular uh, 
uh, value to how the, how the image gets done, as long as it gets done. But uh, I do say I, en- I enjoy playing with paints and splashing paint around <laughs> in my studio, and, and I would miss... Uh, I, I can tell the difference in how I feel at the end of the day between a day I spent drawing on the computer and a day I spent uh, working up in my regular studio, standing at an easel or working at a drawing table. It's it's a whole different experience. Uh, with one, uh, the only thing I've moved all day long is is uh, my right arm from my elbow to my fingertips, and the rest of my body has been fairly static during most of the the process and. Uh, with the other thing, it's a whole body movement, and, and I feel that uh, uh, much more engaged with uh, the materials. And uh, when I'm working digitally, there's very little opportunity for accidents to happen. You know, it'd be kind of fun, actually, if someone would invent software that just randomly inserted glitches into digital images that artists are working on so that um, it it made accidental things happen that you had to contend with. Uh, Because that's what happens when I'm working upstairs, uh, you know, on a painting on my easel. uh, A splash of paint will happen or there'll be a drip or something. And sometimes... It's a fortuitous accident. I'll look at it and I'll say, ah, that makes it actually better. Or, you know, this could be a tentacle coming down here and da-da-da-da-da. And it'll lead me off on a tangency that that wouldn't have occurred to me otherwise. When I'm working digitally, you know, there's no opportunity for that to happen, really. I I remember an interview with uh, Brian Eno um, in Wired magazine, and and he said that... uh, uh, he was bothered by digital keyboards, the uh, current generations of, of digital keyboards, because he said they were too good. That, uh, they, A, they gave you too many options that, uh, you could do virtually anything with that. And his feeling was that art, uh, happens in, uh, an artist trying to work around the obstacles that are built into the technology that he's dealing with that he's trying to create art with. And if there are limitations in a keyboard or in a uh, sound module or in a, a guitar or something that one is working with, you you have to develop creative ways to work around those limitations, and that leads you into a unique sound or unique uh, solution to the problem that, that makes the art yours and distinctive and different. Uh, from what other people would do. And the same is true with the visual arts. You know, um, I've got different ways of creating an image on a, on a canvas or on a panel or, or whatever. And I, I try to vary my approach as often as possible just to keep myself interested and to allow for accidents and, and variables to get inserted into my process so that my work, uh, uh, goes in directions that I don't necessarily anticipate right from the beginning. Um, that there's less opportunity for that to happen when I'm working digitally. I I love what digital tools can do. Don't get me wrong, I, but I tend to use uh, digital software for the initial stages of of doing layouts, testing different color schemes, uh, especially perspective layouts. Oh my God, you can create uh, vanishing points on horizon lines that go you know, miles out to one side or the other, whereas if I was trying to plot that out on the floor of my studio, you know, I'd have to build an annex onto one side to, to have the vanishing point go far enough to allow me to, to, you know, use an analog method of creating the perspective line. So it's a, it's a great tool. Yeah, I, mean, I, could, I could see that. And that was one of the questions I had is like, what is the value of the process 
and how does that contribute to the creative or the artistic process? But I, you could also argue from playing devil's advocate that mm-hmm. the new technology just has new opportunities. It doesn't have the same old opportunities. Like you might say, well, if you're taking yeah, a, pic- if you're taking a picture, you know, that you lose a lot of the creative aspect of drawing up, drawing up, you know, painting a, a painting. It's like, yeah, but there's lots of new opportunities with photography that. Oh my goodness. Exist. That's so, you're so right. Um, I've been a judge for, there's a, an annual that comes out once a year, uh, and it's been coming out now for 22, 23, 25 years. I can't remember how long, uh, we've been doing it, but it's called the Spectrum, uh, Fantasy Art Annual, and it's the best fantasy art, uh, produced every year, and there's a panel of judges that, are selected to to judge the work, and I've I was uh, judge in the first Spectrum Annual many years ago, and the tenth, and I believe the twentieth. And um, the difference from the first to the twentieth is is a, a quantum expansion in the 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 quantity and the quality of the digital art being done. Yeah, I I saw you know now a good deal of the work being done for Hollywood, for example, and. And, uh, whatever is all done digitally. And, and it's not just that it's, it's painted, uh, dig- digitally, you know, on a, using a, a tablet on a screen or whatever, but they're making use of digital tools that allow for techniques that simply aren't available to a traditional painter. So it's, uh, it's quite a wonderful thing. And, and the artists that are skilled in, in, uh, fully employing what's available digitally are, uh, are really creating things that uh, no one's ever seen before, and they're wonderful. Yeah, it's so ge- a very exciting development. What, what generally happens is when a, a new technology comes along, it is used to replace the old technology, but mm-hmm. then eventually it evolves into a thing unto itself. You know, like first yeah. cars were literally horseless carriages, then they evolved into cars, you know, their own thing. And it's the same thing, like we're using digital technology to duplicate analog technology when in fact it will take on a life of its own and open up possibilities that just weren't possible with analog That's exactly technology. true. I, I've seen that actually happen. Um, uh, if I can give you a, a short anecdote, uh, sure. I delivered a painting for a cover for a Stephen King book in 1988 to a publisher, and uh, the art director said, well, uh, enjoy this while you can. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I figure in five years, guys like you are going to be obsolete. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, we'll develop banks of image files, and uh, after a while, we'll be able to just digitally uh, combine images of different objects uh, and, and combine them in such a way as to make an effective book cover, and we won't need guys like you um, anymore to, to do our book covers for us. <clears throat> and I said, well, most of what I do is fantasy art, so when you can find photographs of dragons, I'll start to worry about it. <laughs> but, yeah. but the thing is, if you've seen Reign of Fire or The oh, Hobbit yeah. or whatever, they can do dragons now. Yes, they can. I mean, they, wow. it's amazing. You know, so... Uh, you know, I'm having to eat my own words in, in, in a funny kind of way. You know, I thought I was being a smartass back then in 1988, but now, uh, it, oh my God, the things that they, that, uh, are, can be created digitally, um, are, uh, just, uh, mind boggling. So, um, and, and there will come a time, I think, Steve, uh, in the future where you'll have AI programs that actually can make the editing decisions that, 
particular artists uh, would choose to select, you know, in the creation. And yeah. actually, not just simulate a Rembrandt or create a Rembrandt forgery that fits uh, a narrow spectrum of uh, parameters. You know, a figure uh, that's a portrait, a male facing right wearing dark clothing, but actually be able to create a Rembrandt of uh, virtually any subject matter that would have been available to Rembrandt during his lifetime. Uh, you know, I, I think that's only a matter of time before we, we get to a point where we can yeah. develop a technology that can do that. And uh, I don't think I'll be around when that happens, so I, I'm not worried too much about it. But I'm glad I'm not a young artist just starting out. So, Michael, are you saying that you, you welcome our robotic overlords? <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> well, okay. So, I mean, this this is interesting when you think about the massive pluses and maybe not so massive minuses as, as I originally thought. But yeah, the the pluses are profound. You know, I think without a doubt, the future is going to have some, some profound artwork and the ability for people. When I mean profound artwork, I mean there's going to be a lot, a lot of original artwork because of how easy it's going to be for people to create incredible pieces of art just, just from them, maybe even doing a rough sketch on their, on a, you know, some type of tablet. It'll be rendered by the software. Oh, goodness. I've seen, I've seen exhibits of uh, sketches done all on, on iPhones, uh, mm-hmm. you know, at the Society of Illustrators. And it's amazing what people can do with the, the tools. If, if they're used to them, if they've grown up with them, they're comfortable with them, and they become uh, really skilled with a particular software platform, you know, it's the the creativity of the human mind is is almost endless, and um, as digital technology progresses, I think uh, human creativity will will move along with it and make use of these new tools in ways that we can't even envision. But I think it'll continue to be interesting. I don't think humans will be made obsolete. We'll just have a new set of uh, tools in our toolbox to make uh, more interesting and more relevant contemporary artwork. Well, Michael, this has been a fascinating. Fascinating discussion. Thanks so much for joining us. For those of you who aren't familiar with his work, it's W-H-E-L-A-N. Just look up Michael Whalen. If you are a science fiction or fantasy fan, you will, you're almost certain to recognize much of his artwork uh, on your favorite novels. Really, I think this is a very fascinating idea. It gets to the core of like, what is art and yeah. the relationship, you know, between technology and the expression of art. I think it's fascinating. So thanks. Thanks for joining us. Well, my pleasure. It's been a, a real uh, fun time, and uh, I've been a fan of the the podcast for quite a long time, so it's, uh, I feel honored to be part of it. Oh, thanks. It's great to have thanks, you. Michael. Thanks, Thank Michael. Thanks, Michael. All right. Take Thank care. You. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about our sponsor this week, Squarespace.com. I am so excited that the SU is sponsored by Squarespace. Squarespace is something that I truly believe in. My own personal website is hosted on Squarespace, and they make it so easy to make your website beautiful and functional. And you don't have to know any HTML. You don't have to know any code. Everything is drag and drop, and everything is really, really user-friendly. Kara, that's because they have state-of-the-art technology that powers their site it leads to more secure platform, a stable platform, and it only starts at $8 a month. Plus, you're going to get a free domain if you sign up for a year. So you should sign up to Squarespace now. So guys, start your free trial site today with no credit card required at squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code SGU to get 10% off your first purchase. 
All right, guys, let's get back to our show. It's time for science or fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fake. I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. No theme this week, just three interesting news items. You guys ready? Yeah, of course. Oh, sure. Mm-hmm. Okay, item number one. Researchers find that assisted driving systems that use a more natural voice, especially one that the driver socially connects to, result in decreased accidents. Item number two. Scientists have created an artificial protein that self-assembles with Buckminster fullerenes to create a lattice superstructure. And item number three. Scientists have developed an entirely dissolvable memristor that can potentially be used as an implantable or environmentally safe sensor. What is that word that you said? Isn't it a, a it's a new fundamental component of uh, of computing, like AND gates and AND gates? It's like RAM and 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 a resistor at the same time. Oh, that makes more sense. A RAM what you resistor? said, Bob, just made it more confusing. Okay. <laughs> oh, that's also the the memristors are more neurological. Like they they mimic mm. brain function better. Jay, go first. Okay, this first item about the, um, if I'm hearing this correctly, so you have an assisted driving system. Steve, is that GPS? Just give it to me. No, it's like a computer that says, that tells you, helps you drive. Yeah, but I mean, I'm just trying, I, I don't know what the difference is between an assisted driving system. Is that like on, in a self-driving car? Yeah, it's or? like pseudo self-driving, but it's assisting the driver. Gotcha. Okay, but it's, you know, slow down, turn left here type yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. It's saying that... Um, if the system uses a more natural voice, one that the driver socially connects to, I think that's the key phrase, the one that the driver socially connects to, results in decreased accidents. So I could see it going both ways. I could see if it's something that's a little bit foreign to the driver that they pay closer attention to it because they have to. And then if it's something that they are more comfortable with, they pay more attention to it. So yeah, I could see this going either way. Um, I will hold that for a second. The second one here about the artificial protein self-assembling, I believe it. I have no no reason to cut that one apart. It seems uh, perfectly legit. Um, right. To create, a, yeah, like I don't know what a Buckminster Fullerene or Reenery always. <laughs> we Bucky balls. Like Bucky week. balls. <laughs> oh, bu- all, right, all right. I know what Bucky balls are. So the uh, Buckminster Bucky. Okay. All right. This last one is interesting. You have like this uh, mem. Memristor dissolvable component that can be implanted. I mean, it sounds like there's a lot, a lot going on there. But for some reason, I feel like you know, yeah, we're we're developing stuff like this now. So let's see. Yeah, the second one about the self-assembling buckyball that is pretty serious, man. That's that is pretty. That's 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 pretty serious. All right, I'm gonna say that number two is the fiction. The one about the buckyballs. Okay, Kara. I never know how to answer because I'm always looking for the tricks. If I'm going to go with my gut here, I would say that I would fully agree with Jay about um, the assisted driving systems, that it could go both ways. You might trust somebody who has a voice that you socially connect to more, um, and that might result in decreased accidents, or a completely novel voice might kind of whip you into shape. You know, you might respond to it more and pay more attention. The problem with that hypothesis is that it won't be novel once you do it for a week. So um, hopefully, if that is the case, they would have looked past that. So I'm going to go ahead and say that it is uh, factual, 
that assisted driving systems that use a more natural voice would result in decreased accidents. Um, scientists having created artificial proteins using buckyballs to create a lattice superstructure sounds totally reasonable to me. The one that sounds unreasonable to me is the Memrister one. And it's only because I don't understand how if something can completely dissolve, how it can be functional anymore. I mean, the... I don't know. For me, the definition of something dissolving is that it goes down to component molecules that actually the bonds start to break in these individual component or even. Well, yeah, I'll, I'd say I'll, down to, okay. I'll clarify for you that gotcha. it, it doesn't work after it dissolves, right? It, oh, <laughs> it, it, it's like it works until it dissolves. It's a way of like, that, like, that really no, no that really awesome. helps. That yes, helps. That's Kara huge. Has a, a huge love and respect for technology, Steve. <laughs> that is hilarious. No, I'm that that was like, going to be my understand question. Understand why you would want to dissolve okay. a whole I, I, I okay. didn't even anticipate that interpretation. Gotcha. It. Gotcha. It's like, so, so the idea would be that. like, yeah, we put the elect- we put the memristor in your body. And it works and does its job and then it, it dissolves. So we don't have to and take it And then it, it dissolves. Out. Yeah. And so I'm thinking that if your body doesn't dissolve it, what would the environment do to dissolve it? So I don't know about, I don't know about the idea of like it being so selective yet that it can exist in your body where you have all these different pH shifts and you, you know, depending on the compartment or you have all these different uh, types of moisture, different salt concentrations, and then somehow it would dissolve in the ocean or in your toilet. So I'm going to still say that this one strikes me as being complicated and I fear what I don't understand. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm going to go with, um, with the memristors that are dissolvable being the fiction. Okay, Bob. Yeah, I, I could see problems with all of these. Um, the driving one, yeah, on one hand, uh, you know, a voice that you're, that's more familiar in, in a, in a lot of ways. I could see that perhaps being effective, but then I could also see you just, you know, people are talking in the car all the time and you ignore it and you ignore that. It wouldn't like get your attention like a robotic voice, like, oh, that, you know, that's clearly not human. I want to listen to that type of thing. Um, so that one, I'm not sure. The, uh, the Buckminster Fullerenes, uh, that, I have a problem with that is because, uh, protein self-assembly, I mean, we haven't cracked that damn nut. I mean, we're, you know, we're, we still don't know, uh, precisely how a, a given protein is going to fold. It's just way too complicated, uh, to, to, to predict even with a super, supercomputer at this point in a, in a, in a lot of ways. Um, so I've got a problem with that one. And then the dissolvable memorister. I mean, I would think there'd be some components in there. I mean, how would they get that would not easily dissolve? Uh, so I, I may just like flip a coin on this one. Now I'm going to go with, uh, with the, the self assembly. I just think we just can't control that in a way that seems like it might be required to get it to integrate with a Buckminster Fullerene. Yeah. Okay. Fiction. Okay. And Evan. Well, uh, Bob, you sort of took the words right out of my mouth. I, I didn't think that self-assembly with these things was uh, here yet. Um, artificial protein that self-assembles. Boy, uh, wouldn't that mean we could control a lot of other things and how proteins assemble? And that, like you said, Bob, that's the nut <clears throat> that we've yet to crack. I, I, I think you're right. I think that that one's going to turn out to be the fiction. The other ones uh, are interesting and you know, in their own right. But uh, this one, I think, is going to be the fiction. Okay, so it's Bob and Evan with the Buckminster Fullerenes. And, and Jay. And Jay. I'm, oh, and I'm Jay. the standalone. All right, so it's Bob, uh-huh. Evan, and Jay with Uh-oh. the Fullerenes and, and, 
and Kara by herself with the memristor. Okay, so you all agree on the first one, so we'll start there. Researchers find that assisted driving systems that use a more natural voice, especially one that the driver socially connects to, results in decreased accidents. You all think this one is science, and this one is the fiction. No! <laughs> Oh, mother. What? Wow. Another sweep. Wow. No Come wow. on. You totally got us. me. No, totally I believe it. Yes. I believe it too. Yeah, you could, wow. like you guys could, could kind of go both ways. It's the other mm. one. Yeah. Mm. So it's, it actually increased accidents. Mm. It increased accidents. So strong interactions with voice guided vehicles do not result in safer driving. They had drivers in a simulated, you know, driving using Oculus Rift actually. And, uh, yeah. they gave the user the option of choosing like the, the voice com- uh, com- that the computer would have that they would be interacting with. And if they, you could either choose a very similar voice or a dissimilar voice. And in fact, the more human like and the more friendly and also the more socially similar to the, the person, uh, the driver, the, the higher the crash rate. Yeah. Yeah, totally. They crashed more during the simulation. So not Mm. clear why that is. It's interesting. You know, it's just against one study. It takes multiple studies to try to wrap your head around these kind of behavioral things. But it's interesting. It's probably, you know, I would think it has something to do with distraction. Like there's something more engaging about the voice, which is distracting you from the task of driving. So, but that, you know, that we need some follow up to, to figure out exactly what's going on there. So we have to think very carefully when we start to get to quasi-autonomous cars, right? Autonomous cars that are – they're still a driver, but they're helping you drive. They're, they might be doing some collision avoidance or braking or giving you some instructions or whatever. Every time we add a gadget to the car, there is the potential that it could have an unintended consequence of distracting the driver and increasing accidents. So you have to be very careful about that. But it could be something as simple as having a voice that doesn't engage you emotionally or socially or whatever. Interesting. Okay, let's move uh, – so of course the other two are science. But let's move on to number two. Scientists have created an artificial protein that self-assembles with Buckminster Fullerenes to create a lattice superstructure. That is science. This is cool. This is a very cool proof of concept here. They, the uh, researchers at the Dartmouth College and then their collaborators created an artificial protein. When this artificial protein is exposed to the Buckminster Fullerenes, which are basically 60 carbon atoms connected up in the shape of a soccer ball that they self-assemble. So it's the proteins and the buckyballs together, right? That's, that's why I said it self-assembles yeah. with the buckyballs to form this lattice structure. So this is obviously like just a proof of concept kind of study, but it demonstrates the potential of using these kind of engineered proteins in order to create desirable structures out of nanomaterials like buckyballs, right? So if we could begin, we could create... If we can have things self-assemble, imagining, you know, having the, at least like the components of, you know, computer uh, equipment self-in- self-assembling out of whatever carbon nanotubes or nanofibers or in this case buckyballs just by mixing it with the proper protein. You could also theoretically, once it does a self-assemble, you could dissolve away the protein if you don't want that to be part of the final product or you might want it to be part of the final product. You know what I mean? You- no reason why the protein itself can't be part of what you're going for. So this, you know, the self-assembling nanomaterials obviously is a huge area of research. Sure. So, yeah, I mean the 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 potential there is massive. You know, just mixing stuff together and building the structures that you want. 
you might just choose the protein that you want, mix it up with whatever the other raw material is, and boom, there you go. You got your B- boom, huh? Is that the noise it makes? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so does yeah, it I mean, produce light when it happens, Steve? <laughs> There's a flash and a boom, and then <laughs> yeah, it's like you imagine go. you got a bunch of Legos, you put them in a bag together, and they, they self-assemble into a little tiny Millennium Falcon. I mean, that's yeah. that's what's basically happening down there, and it's really cool if they could if they could leverage that that natural ability. Damn, it'd be awesome. Yeah. All right. This means that scientists have developed an entirely dissolvable memristor that can potentially be used as an implantable or environmentally safe sensor is also science. And yeah, memristors themselves are cool. They're, they're resistors that also remember their electrical state. So they have memory as well. And they, these researchers built uh, a memristor out of components that dissolve when wet. But when dry, will function. So um, it was made out of spun, they said spun out of diluted egg albumin on a silicon wafer and then turned it to an ultra-thin film. And then they incorporated electrodes made out of magnesium and tungsten. Uh, they tested the device in a, in a dry condition in the lab, and it worked reliably for three months. And then they put it in water, and it dissolved between two and ten hours. Wow. Hmm. So the, the the like albumin parts of it dissolved in in a number of hours, two to ten hours, and then the metal parts uh, dissolved in about three days, leaving behind just minimal residue. They said. So Weird. the application of this, why would you bother to build dissolvable, you know, memristors, is for like implantation into an animal, or if you need to place them in the environment and you only need them to function for a short period of time, but you want them to eventually go away, you know, you won't have to go back and collect them. This option could be useful. It's like, you know, you think about, you could think about it like dissolvable stitches, right? You know, you put this, when you're like sewing deep, putting deep stitches in a wound, you can't go back in there and take them out. You want them just dissolve on their own. Uh, but they, they yeah. last long enough for the wound to heal. And then after the wound heals, the stitches just dissolve. This would be the same thing. So yeah, it's a very interesting idea. Again, it's one of those things that uh, that kind of technology. It's always hard to know how it's going to play out. What who's going to find a use for it? Is there going to be a quote unquote killer app, or is it just going to be a laboratory curiosity? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Which all, which Trixie means <laughs> Steve wins. Yeah. Yes. Well, you guys, you guys swept me last week. Oh. Sweep. Yeah. And then I, I don't remember week. because I have such a bad memory. Yeah. yeah. Bad audit, bad audit, CRS. Mu- CRS. <laughs> 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 you guys never heard that one, huh? I, I did, have, but I forgot. I thought CRS, like, is this some of Cara Santa Maria? What is awesome. it? Right, what yeah, are you going what for I here? Too. I thought it was a medical thing. You know? Yeah, that's what I was hoping you were going to think. Uh-huh. <laughs> All right, Evan, speaking of medical things, yeah. give us the quote for this week. The claim of alternative practitioners to not treat disease labels but the whole patient allows alternative practitioners to live in a fool's paradise of quackery where they believe themselves to be protected from any challenges and demands for evidence. Damn right. And that was said by Edzard Ernst, friend of skeptics everywhere, German-born but a physician in the UK uh, and researcher specializing in the study of complementary and alternative medicine. He's been seen as, quote, the scourge of alternative medicine for publishing critical research that exposes, that exposes methods that lack documentation of efficacy. And the 2015 John Maddox Prize award winner for his courage in standing up for science. Good man. 
Edzard. I like that name. Edzard, yeah. He's awesome. Cool he basically started out, uh, he was a trained homeopath, you know, mm-hmm. but if it's also a physician. And he's, he said he wanted to bring scientific rigor to the field of alternative medicine. He was actually a proponent. Uh, but then over the years, you know, he said, well, yeah, the – the evidence shows that it none of it works. Hmm. And then not only that, not only does it not work, but the proponents, I mean, he said like, yeah, alternative medicine proponents are children. It's like they whine oh, and complain mm-hmm. when you show them evidence. It's like, yeah. no, that's, that's, that's this, this quote. I could see, you know, him in this quote, why he said this, that they did, they, yeah, they live in this fool's paradise where they think that because they, ideologically have framed their practices in such a way they're immune to evidence. That's because they don't want to be held to the standards of evidence. He totally, you know, learned that firsthand from being from within the community. He was within the community to start. That's right. But, you know, just and very brave of him to break out yeah. from from within <laughs> from from his roots basically, from where mm-hmm. he came. He listened to the evidence. Yeah. You know? Yeah. As a good scientist does. Yep. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you all for joining me this week. Right. Thank Thank you. Thank you, Steve. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible.